All right, let's take our Bibles this morning, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. I'm continuing on a third part on the only unique high priest. And remember, Hebrews does give us a clear focus, maybe more than any other book in the Bible, of who Christ is. It's very hard to get away from Christology in Hebrews. In fact, it brings up things that really no other book of the Bible brings up and puts it all together, especially when it comes to Old Testament truth. So we have been considering so far Jesus as a merciful high priest who is for us, interceding on our behalf, helping us to hold fast our confession that we made in Christ Jesus, helping us to take another step, to breathe another breath, to do the next right thing that pleases him. That's what he does for us. So that as we move down the road on our Christian pilgrimage, which that's what it is, it's possible to find strength to continue. When, when you know, and I know, in our flesh, sometimes I cry out to the Lord and I says, Lord, I don't have the strength to go on. I don't have the resolve to go on. But you can give it to me because you're my great high priest. And that's what your ministry to your church is. So we can trust Christ for his greatness and power as a high priest and press on in our Christian pilgrimage no matter what befalls us on our way to the celestial city, as John Bunyan so well wrote in Pilgrim's Progress. While we are moving and growing in Christ-likeness, we should be practicing going to Christ in prayer for necessary strength and grace to hold firm our profession. Because our, our weaknesses are evident. So we need the assistance of our high priest. And remember this, all the purposes of his office, everything that he accomplishes in this office of high priest, remember, prophet, priest, king, all fulfilled in Christ, right? In this particular office is for our benefit. The Lord did none none of it for himself. He did it all for his church, all for his people. So it's our benefit. And they are available to us And we're to take full advantage of them. The problem is we don't. We we don't really take advantage of what God offers us. So we can continue to press on in our pilgrimage because of four essential aspects of Christ's priesthood. I mentioned two of them. The first one is we can continue because of our victorious high priest. Christ had won the battle. He's victorious. We're victorious with him. And secondly, we can continue to press on because of our compassionate high priest. Christ understands our weaknesses to the fullest, to the highest measure, more than any, any human being could understand them. Because remember, in his temptation, he went the full length of temptation. We give in way before uh, we, we get to the end of it. Christ went right to the end of it. So he took all the weight that temptation can throw at him that the world can throw at him, that Satan can throw at him. And um, he won. 
And so he's compassionate. He understands and sympathizes with us. That's what he does. But there's a third and a fourth one that I want to mention on two, under these two major headings. And that's that we can continue on to press on in our pilgrim, pilgrimage because Jesus is our submissive high priest. Now, this is very important for you and I because Christ submitted to everything that would qualify him to be our high priest. Now, that to us may not mean like a lot, but it is major when it comes to the Lord himself. In fact, he qualified as high priest not only in the qualifications of the Old Testament, but he went beyond that. And I'll mention that this morning. Now, how did he do that? How did Christ submit? And in what ways did he submit and accomplish all the qualifications he needed to as the high priest? Well, the first one is this. He submitted to becoming a human mediator. And if you notice in verse number 1 of chapter 5, it says this, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. In other words, our high priest Jesus Christ was chosen from among men to represent man to God. That's the job of the high priest, to represent man to God. To do everything we can't do or we forget to do before God so God's wrath doesn't fall upon us. See, because because of God's displeasure with man on account of sin, God cannot have favorable communication with us. So there must be an appointed mediator between man and God. The priest of the Old Testament was that mediator. And of course, the priest of our New Testament is not only a priest, but he is the king priest, and of course that is Jesus Christ. But it could not have been anyone who filled the office or the role of high priest. He had to meet certain qualifications, then... He was to serve the people. He was to manage, in other words, the religious affairs of the people. And that included several things. He was to do for them what must be done before God. And what were some of those things? To expiate or cover or send away their sin. It was his responsibility to make sure everything was done in the right way to approach a holy God so the people's sins could be forgiven. A second thing was to avert God's displeasure and propitiate his favor. In other words, remember, don't forget, propitiation, that big word, simply means something that is done in view to God. An offering made to God that satisfies. The word propitiates means to satisfy the demands of God's law and his justice. And the high priest was responsible for the people. Before God to make sure that was done. If it, if it wasn't done, then the whole of humanity and the nation of Israel would have to be wiped out because they weren't meeting God's requirements. Another thing that the high priest was uh, to do is to secure friendly interaction with God. 
in the acceptance of people's service to him and God's blessing on them. See, all this was important in the high priest's job. So don't ever underestimate the responsibility this man and this from the uh, tribe of Levi had before the people. It was a tr- matter of fact, by 50 years old, they were done. They were shot. They were worn out. A second thing that uh, Jesus submitted to is that he was to do the work of the high priest, the chief priest. And if you notice in verse number one, in the middle of the verse, it says, this is what he does in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. You see that? So we see this is the responsibility. He ministered the high priest in order to carry out everything required by God on, on the behalf of the people. And we know from the Old Testament that all priests were in some way responsible for at least five key offerings the Israelites made to God. They had a knowledge of these offerings in this sense, that when they did them correctly, it would cause the forgiveness of sin in God's people, and it would restore fellowship back to God. Now, what were those five offerings? Well, we had the burnt offering, but the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1 was a voluntary offering. And then we had the grain offering, the grain offering was also voluntary, and it really acknowledged in someone's heart uh, that they were grateful that all belongs to God and God was willing to share with them. And then there was the peace offering. That was also voluntary. And it expressed gratitude to God that symbolizes peace and fellowship with God. But in he, right here in this text, Believe me, uh, the high priest had to do, the most important offerings were were the required offerings. And that was the sin offering and the guilt offering. And the sin offering really makes a payment for unintentional sins of uncleanness, of even neglect or thoughtlessness before God. Everything had to be atoned for. So a person can be restored to God. It also showed in the sin offering, listen, sin was serious, and God took it serious. And so therefore, everything, every detail had to be done correctly. And then, of course, there was the guilt offering that often was done with the sin offering, and that offering made a payment uh, for sins against God and sins even against other people. And the sacrifice was made before God And it showed the destructive consequences of sins. How sin brought such incredible guilt within the heart of man before a holy God that it was unbearable to live. It was unbearable to go another step with this guilt hanging over the person who really, uh, in Israel, wanted to please God. So, I just want to show you from the Old Testament what some of these groups of people, when they sinned, what the high priest was to do, and also the intended results. Every time the high priest went in, and the priest went in to minister in behalf of the people, 
they, they, they had it an intended result that they wanted to achieve. And so that's why if you look in the Old Testament, it's very meticulous on how somebody was to approach God and how they were to do it. And all these details were laid out. But when they were done correctly, then there was an end result that was in view. Now, let's take our Bibles for a minute and turn to Leviticus chapter 4. And I want you to see some of the meticulous details in making the sin offering and then the results achieved, that the desired results achieved by the high priest. And in Leviticus chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1, just follow me, follow with me in your Bibles, and I want you to see some things. It says in verse number 1, then, Leviticus chapter 4, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if a person sins unintentionally, in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them, and then notice verse number three, if the anointed priest sins, now we're dealing with the priest who's supposed to be responsible before God. He was to look at himself. And if any sin he committed before God, he was to bring an offering. Notice what it says in verse three, if the anointed priest sins, so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the, for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hands on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. Verse 5, then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood, Seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary, the priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting, and all the blood of the bulls, the bull, he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Verse 8, he shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver which he shall remove with the kidneys just that is, as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offering and the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering but the hide of the bull and all its flesh which is its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse. It is all the rest of the bull. He is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out and it shall be burned. Now, that's what the priest had to do to take care of his own sin. That's pretty detailed, isn't it? Try to remember all that and make sure that you do it in every detail. And the way God wants you to do it, why? Because you're, re, you're coming before God with the people and with your own sin. But notice in verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any, things, any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and they become guilty. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but the same thing happens with if the whole congregation becomes guilty, the high priest is to represent the people before God, and he's to take care of all of it in detail. But I want you to notice 
the intended result every time he did it and why he had to do it just the way God said to do it. In verse 19, it says, He shall also do with the bull, just as he did with the bull of the sin offering, thus he shall do with it. And look what it says. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be what? They will be what? Forgiven. See, there's the result that the sacrifice was was made for this purpose, so the people can be forgiven. Now, look at verse 22. And when a leader sins unintentionally, does any of the things which the Lord his God has commanded not, commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty, and then look at the intended result in verse 26. As its fat he shall offer up in smoke on the altar, as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of peace offering, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will what? be forgiven right there's the result look at verse 27 if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty remember anytime someone sins immediately guilt comes it lays heavy on the conscience especially in a culture like this where people were very aware of if they sinned the wrath of God would be upon them and that God would be against them. They didn't want them. That's why the priest was there. And so look at the intended result again in verse 31 of Leviticus 4. It says this. That's what I'm in Leviticus 4, right? In verse 31, Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offering, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. And then notice what it says. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. I hope you're seeing this in your own Bibles. I really do. Look at your own Bible and see what it says in, in the text of Scripture. The priest had a result, and that was to make sure the people's sins were forgiven. And he could not do that. That could not happen unless there was atonement. Atonement comes from the word that means to cover sin, to blot it out, to send it away. All right? So the people can be restored to the Lord. And then look at verse number 35. Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar, on the offering on the offerings by fire to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sins which he has committed, and he shall what? Be forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but just reading this makes me exhausted. Reading a passage of Scripture like this should give you the sense that the priest's job was relentless. It was exhausting it was endless he was totally involved as a man with the needs of men and if you know anything about the needs of men and people the needs of people never end it's one after another after another so these guys had tremendous responsibility and work to be done in behalf of the people and, the, and because the high priest had to deal with sinners, 
at the same time represents sinners, that means his attitude. Believe me, when you deal with the needs of men and the guilt that comes on because of their sin and their sin, you better have a good attitude. Because if you don't, you can't be a high priest. Matter of fact, if that's why in the New Testament, if we are to minister to people as uh, the priesthood of believers, we have to have an attitude that properly sees people in a way that we can actually minister to them and not condemn them and be able to help them out of their sin and guilt into a relationship with God. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Well, just get this for a minute in our scriptures, back to Hebrews chapter 5, because his attitude and demeanor had to be equal to the weight of his task. And believe me, if somebody put a job description up on a board for you to apply for a job as high priest, most people would say, forget it. I'm not taking that job. But some may take it because of the glory of the job, because of the position of the job. And so I want you to notice a third thing that Jesus submitted to was human weakness, where it says in chapter 5, verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. In other words, the high priest was one who must have compassion on blamable sinners, not innocent sinners, people who actually sinned. They actually offended God and they needed help at that particular point. So the high priest, matter of fact, in in the scripture, in the Greek, There's a very special and rare word used here in this passage to describe the attitude toward his fellow human beings. And it it meant the word here uh, to be deal gently. It's translated in our Bibles here to deal gently with with ignorant and misguided people. You better deal gently with ignorant and misguided people. Because most of the time we don't want to deal with those kind of people. We want to deal with people who have everything together, who are on our same level, who we communicate with. That's not what the high priest's job was. He he was to deal with people who were ignorant of many times the truth of God's word, didn't even want to do it, and they were misguided and misled by the other nations around them. Actually, the word means to have feelings in the right measure with understanding to moderate one's passions and emotions. I like where it says in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 27, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So the high priest had to have a tremendous character to to him, to be able to regulate his emotions, regulate his character. And so, in fact, in the end of verse number one, the he kind of referred to the functions of the high priest on the Day of Atonement, that the offering of gifts and sacrifices for sin. In verse 2, it seems to be on the how he does his duty and not on the what. The word describes an attitude towards others which does not issue in anger or grief. Get angry with the person for not listening, for being ignorant, or you get so upset with them, you're, you're grief-stricken by their sin. And believe me, those are the things we deal with even as Christians. 
right? When our own life, other people's sins, we either can get angry with them or be so grief-stricken with them that we fail, it actually will cripple us to do the next thing. And that's to help them out of it. To direct them towards Christ-likeness. So, see, the high priest is not to act like a stern judge, nor to be, nor was he to ignore sin or condone sin, nor condemn sin. That was not his job to do that. You know what his job was? His job was to make atonement for sin in behalf of the people so they can be right with God. So we're talking about somebody who fulfills this office has an incredible character. He is someone who in in the end can deal gently with sinners, directing them back to God's way. And helping them to be right with God and to stay right with God. So he had a strength to him and resolve to him in which he wanted to please God and bring these sacrifices before the Lord in such an honorable way that the people can walk away forgiven. That the people could walk away with their guilt removed. You see, it's all pointing to Christ, you know. And that's, I'm not really mentioning it right now, but I want you to notice a, a fourth thing that Jesus submitted himself to, and that's great humiliation in verse number three. And he says, and because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. Now, it's just simply saying there that the high priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Of course, that was not the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one who was the sinless one, offering up himself for sinners. So this is, there's a a shift and a change that goes on in our text. Uh, And this is really simply saying that the Levitical priests were partakers of the human nature, just like every other man. However, the Old Testament priests priests had to come from a particular lineage and that was the line of Aaron the Levitical tribe right the tribe of Levites and out of that the line of Aaron just as our next text is is going to inform us but there's one thing I want to throw out to you right now Jesus was a high priest but he was not from the line of Levi nor was he from the Aaronic priesthood. He wasn't from them. Now, wait a minute. How is he going to qualify to be a priest if he's not from them? Well, I'm not going to discuss that this morning because we're going to deal with that in chapter 7. But I want you to notice a, a next thing that Jesus submits to and that by not taking honor to himself but waiting for the Father to appoint him to the office of high priest. Look at verse number 4. It says, And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So there's a comparison here between the the priest of Aaron's line, all right, and the one who is called by God. So any high priest had to be called by God to to fulfill that office. And we know, of course, that Jesus Christ He had to be called by God, too, to fulfill that office. He did not take honor for himself, but waited at the right time, at the right moment, to be appointed by God to this office 
before actually he went to the cross. Now, he did not seek the office of high priest for himself. And we have a, a quotations here in our Bibles, if you notice, from two passages in the book of Psalms. We have Psalm 2-7. Don't turn there because it's right here in our text. And then Psalm 110 in verse number 4. So he brings up the psalm. And so these passages that describe Jesus Christ as the high priest have been spoken a long time ago in the Old Testament. He was already there in Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm 110. And notice what it says in our text here. In verse number 5 through 6, it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we've been singing that song for uh, some time now, and I would say that, you and I may have difficulty identifying this particular person called Melchizedek. But before I look at that, I want you to to notice that these Old Testament texts emphasize two important things about our unique high priest, Jesus Christ, that he is greater than Aaron. He is greater than the Levitical priesthood. It emphasizes Christ's eternal sonship in these quotes and his continuing priesthood, that Christ's call was based on his sonship, that Jesus is a son, not simply a servant like all the high priests were. He's a son and therefore has full inheritance. We dealt with that in chapter 1. And then it secondly emphasizes Christ's relationship with the Father and his identification with men, that Christ's call to the high priest was based on his divinity he is not merely a man from a human line of levitical priests but he is a divine priest king who is eternal now for the first time we are introduced to a very strange and elusive character in scripture in our verse number 6, and that character is named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was a priest-king found in the Old Testament. And I believe it was Genesis chapter 14. Now, I'll briefly mention some things about him because I kind of want to introduce you to this person. But then in chapter 7, I'll bring up more detail about him. Matter of fact, his very word, his very name Melchizedek comes from two Hebrew words that one is melech, which means it, it means king of, and then you have sedek, which means righteousness. So we see, put that together, and this man is the king of what? Righteousness. Right? Also, we know from other passages of Scripture, he is the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God who lived in the days of of Abraham. Now, if you know anything about biblical chronology, then you will conclude that Melchizedek was in the order of high priest that was before the Aaronic priesthood, before it was ever established, before 
Isaac and Jacob were even born. Jesus was a high priest. That's what it's telling us here. In fact, look down at verse number 10 quickly of chapter 5 of Hebrews. Being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. In fact, he gets, it gets very crazy trying to identify who he actually was. Just, I'm going to throw out a few verses to you. Look over to chapter 7 of Hebrews in verse 1 through 3. And I'll kind of leave it there and mention a few things where it says this. For this Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who went, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, verse 2, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all his spoils, was, first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, you know, Jerusalem, the city of what? Peace. So we have here king of Salem, king of peace. It's translating for us in Scripture. But then look at verse number 3. Look at this man. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Who is this person? This does not sound like a human being. This sounds like something that's beyond being a human being, right? Well, that means something very important. That Jesus is more unique than any other high priest. That Jesus is greater in rank and more important than even Abraham, the father of everything. And that Jesus is greater because his priesthood is perpetual and indestructible. So what do we have here? Who who is this person? Well, Melchizedek, there could be two ways you can take it in the Old Testament. That Melchizedek was actually a theophany. That means uh, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And that... It could mean also that he was a type, that Melchizedek was actually a person who typified everything Jesus would be as a high priest and link him back into eternity as the divine high priest, the high priest who is God. And so that's where it takes us, and that becomes... Makes something very that this is this becomes very important to you and I as believers because it so secures our salvation that nothing else can. That Jesus Christ is like all the Aaronic priests and he goes beyond it, he's done everything possible he needed to do to take care of everything that needed to be taken care of so we can be saved. And then I want you to notice something else in verse number seven it says this that he submitted by depending in all his human experience on the Father's aid. Notice verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to, to the one able to save him from death. So what did Jesus do in his flesh? And I believe that in his flesh here includes more than just the hour of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and the hour of torture on the cross 
It also means the whole of his learning, the whole of his limitations, the whole of his humiliation as a man in this world, that Jesus was under the full pressure of humanity, so therefore became a man of sorrows, remember, acquainted with grief, but he also became a man of prayer, as we see in our passage in verse number 7. He offered up both prayers and supplications. How did he do it? With loud crying and tears? This is our Lord. His humanity and his divinity are linked very closely in this passage of Scripture that the Lord agonized as a priest for us. He cried before the Father and agonized for us. He knelt in the garden the night of his arrest because he was faced with a humanly terrifying death. But at the same time, a divinely necessary death. That this was the responsibility that was laid only to him as a high priest and he had to accomplish it. And notice what he did. He prayed. What did he pray in verse number 7? That he was able that he would able to commit himself to the one who's able to save him from death. And then it says there, he was heard for his much piety. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that Jesus was saved from dying because he was crucified and died. What it means is that Jesus was delivered out of the state or out of the realm or, or better yet, out of the power of death. That God the Father answered Jesus' prayer by resurrecting the Son and exalting Him to His right hand in glory. See, the Lord had to accomplish that first in order for everything to be done. And then in verse 7, it says that He was heard for His his piety, His his reverence. He, 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 uh, He really gave God the Father appropriate awe before Him and God the Father heard his prayer and he answered him. But, but I believe that word piety goes beyond than just our understanding in our mind. It means he was answered because of his strong desire to obey the Father at all times, in all circumstances. That's what piety is. Godliness is obeying God. And that your desire grows stronger and stronger and stronger to do so every day of your life. You can't put sin to death unless you want to obey God and that your obedience and desire to obey God is stronger than your passion for that sin. That's the only way you're going to put it to death. You know you can't have both. You've got to have one or the other. So see, and that's why in verse number 8 it brings this up. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. That Jesus became experimentally acquainted with obedience. It does not say he learned to obey, but he learned obedience. That's different. He learned from the things that he suffered. He comes into humanity, and to get the job done for us to be saved was a just one level of suffering after another. As soon as Jesus gets commissioned, to do his job in this world. What does he do? He gets pulled into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Through everything Adam, he possibly could. He passed that test. He qualified in that test. He learned to 
hold to the word of God and obey God's word in the sense that that's where the suffering came in and he learned obedience. He learned from the things that he suffered. That is his obedience and his his surrender to the will of the Father. The obedience referred to here is obedience in the character of the high priest. And what was the character of the high priest? The doing of all that God appointed him to do. That's always been the character of the high priest. If you don't do it right, you don't, you don't obtain the end result. So when he did it right, and he did everything that he was supposed to do, then he would gain the result of the end of his office. Which was what? To cover sin and send it away to cover guilt by the blood of the sacrifice and to obtain and secure salvation for men. That was the end result that Jesus was fulfilling. So no matter how severe the sufferings that would be required on him and thrown on him, he obeyed the Father and he did not shrink back from any of it, and submit it to all of it. So what do we have here in Jesus Christ? You know what we have? We have, a true, uh, we have a true man in perfect submission to his Father's will and whose only desire was his Father's will. That's what we have in Christ. Look, at, look over at Hebrews chapter 10 for a minute. Uh, in verse number 9, it says, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, in a sense, the cross was the end of learning obedience. It was the final test. And the commandment of the high priest that was to be received from the Father, was he's to, he was to lay down his life for his people, in whose place he stood, and for whose benefit he acted, not for his own. And so the great act of obedience for this unique king-priest was that he should offer himself for us a sacrifice and an offering. That's what he did. And that's why we have recorded in Philippians where it says, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So obedience to the last thing he had to do to secure our salvation, even death on the cross. Christ could have never died any other way. So you know what that means? That when you contrast Jesus with the ironic priesthood, Jesus is greater than all because he is not from the line of Aaron who died. Jesus is related to the priesthood of Melchizedek, which has an eternal aspect to it, meaning that Jesus is the priest of God eternally. So now, Jesus Christ, who perfectly qualified as a high priest, from an eternal order of priests, can and will provide salvation to all who ask Him. 
making his ministry different and unlike all those who've gone before him. His ministry is eternally effective. He didn't have to do it over and over and over again like the Old Testament priest. When he finished it, because he was the perfect, obedient Lamb of God from the order, eternal order of the priest of Melchizedek, he was able to accomplish with what no Levitical priest could accomplish. And so, on my last major point, which I'll not spend time on at all, but it brings me to the conclusion. And remember, what was the end result of the work of the high priest? To atone for sin, right? So the people could be what? Forgiven. That was the goal. Well, let's see if that goal is mentioned in verse number 9 and 10, because Jesus... Listen, we can continue on to press on in our pilgrimage because Jesus is our effective high priest. It says this in verse number 9, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So what happens here? That Jesus has been made perfect in all his sufferings. To be what? The perfect offering before God. Remember, perfection could have never been attained through the Levitical priesthood. In fact, the law made nothing perfect. The law condemned and brought guilt to lead people to Christ. But what does it say in this passage here? Because of what the Lord's done, and because He's the perfect offering, He became He became to all those who obey Him. Who's all those who obey Him? Those who believe, right? Those who are His children. And what does He become? He becomes the source, not just of salvation, but notice the word, eternal salvation. A salvation that could never, ever be overturned. It can never be taken away. It is yours forever because our high priest has accomplished everything that he needed to accomplish so we can be saved. When Christ gives himself as a propitiatory sacrifice, he satisfies what God requires because God requires the death penalty for sin and his justice demands that a life would be poured out. That means when a person repents and obeys Jesus as their source of eternal salvation, the wrath and justice of God toward that person is satisfied. That Christ's sacrifice then sets aside sin, purifies the people that come to Him, delivers men and women from judgment, and averts the wrath of God forever. Remember, there's no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. That's what that means. So when the Satan comes against you and accuses you, what do you remind him of? Yes, you're right, Satan, I'm a sinner. But I have a high priest who's paid everything and made sure everything was paid for before God on my behalf. Go talk to him. And depart from me. 
And I resist you in that truth. You have to deal with Christ. I am secure in Christ. So Jesus, the great eternal high priest, takes care of everything that pertains to our relationship with God. Now, if that does not encourage you in this pilgrimage that we're on, as we live each day and deal with issues and needs and problems and and we deal with, we go from joy to sorrow and sorrow to joy and back and forth all the way through the end of our lives with the different phases of life, we have to have this truth really embedded in our heart as a teaching that cannot be changed, that we can continue on with joy and with hope to press on and live for God in an obedient manner so God can receive the glory and all the praise for everything he has accomplished and he's yet to accomplish through your life, right? So that's what the Word of God tells us in this portion of Scripture. Take it, brethren, and think about it. Make it part of your thinking and let it excite your soul because that is the truth. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you, as always, Lord, that you are our eternal king priest that accomplishes for us what no other priest could accomplish. And that's our eternal salvation. Lord, just to look at those two words, eternal salvation is mind-boggling. But I do pray, Lord, that if someone here does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation for them. They would come and cast themselves upon you with all their sin, knowing that you are our high priest that takes care of it that could make them right with God, cleanse them, take away the guilt, and give them eternal salvation. Please, Lord, do that in those who have not come, those who have come and know you. Please continue every day to grow them in their faith, to grow them from being a babe in Christ to a young person in Christ who who can take the word of God and fight Satan with it, and then someone who grows in their faith to be a spiritual father. Lord, enable them and help them to do that, to grow like that. So, Lord, we can be and minister to other people as the priesthood of believers and be able to show and point people how to be right with God and how to stay right with God and how to walk with God as we do so ourselves. So, Lord, keep us faithful. Don't let us fall on our face. Help the church to work that we're enabling each other and and praying for each other and holding each other up, Lord. And I pray, Lord, you would constantly remind us of the scriptures that I dealt with this morning and others that encourage us as we live our life. Lord, all we can do is give you praise and worship now for all that you've done. And I pray that we do so appropriately and lift up your awesome name. I pray in Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.